0: In the early days, you were really talking about palliative care, about just making people a little bit more comfortable. Then you get this huge breakthrough where we have something called antiretroviral medication, which is seen to reduce the amount of HIV in your system, what's called the viral load, really dramatically. And you have people who had made their wills and were getting ready to die literally getting up from their sick beds and getting on with their lives. As that happened, by this stage, you have an epidemic that is global rather than just in North America and Western Europe. The foundation spent a lot of resources and money supporting ways in which those treatments could get to people as quickly as possible.
1: That's Anne Aslett, Chief Executive Officer of the Elton John AIDS Foundation, a global organization that envisions a world free from AIDS for everyone. Anne joined the foundation almost 20 years ago before today's advances in treatment for HIV and now leads the organization's work to end the AIDS epidemic for people and communities who are most vulnerable. Today, Anne is joined by Mike Steinberg, the team lead for global public health and special projects at Chevron Corporation. Mike oversees various projects and programs across the enterprise that support the health, wellness, and safety needs of the companies. 40,000 employees, as well as communities in which the company operates. This includes a focus on the prevention and treatment of HIV-AIDS. I'm Pamela Rich, and this is the Business Group on Health podcast, conversations with experts on the most relevant health and well-being issues facing employers. Just in time for World AIDS Day, Anne Aslett and Mike Steinberg are joining me for a conversation about mapping a world free of HIV. This episode is sponsored by OnDuo by Verily, helping people with chronic conditions such as diabetes and hypertension lead healthier lives through personalized virtual care. OnDuo, that's O-N-D-U-O, is a simple solution for managing multiple chronic conditions that gives greater access to empathy-based, inclusive care to help improve population health, which may lower costs for employers. Anne and mike welcome to the business group on health podcast i'm just so thrilled to be able to sit down with you and have this conversation both of you bring such experience and interesting perspective to the topic of preventing and treating hiv aids and we have a lot of ground to cover so let's just jump right in and Anne, i'd love to start our conversation with you the Elton John AIDS Foundation is one of the leading AIDS organizations in the world and let's be frank the name alone has a lot of cachet. So I'd love to hear from your perspective about the origin story of the foundation and how you got to be where you are today.
0: Sure, and thank you so much for having me. So Yeah, the Elton John AIDS Foundation was founded 30 years ago this year um, around Elton John's kitchen table in Atlanta. It was founded in response to Elton getting to know a young kid called Ryan White who was living in Indiana who'd been infected with HIV through a contaminated blood transfusion. Elton was so struck by the plight of Ryan and his family and the stigma and discrimination and judgment that they received from the community, from school, it really, Tobo charged him to want to do something much, much more significant personally. So he founded the charity. In the early days, around the early 90s, there was no effective treatment, questionable uh, ways of confirming diagnosis, which were long and convoluted, and a huge amount of fear and stigma. The mission of the foundation in those days was to allow for people to live with a little bit less pain and more dignity, so protecting them as far as possible from the shame and judgment associated with HIV and giving palliative care to people who were dying of AIDS and as the epidemic has evolved and so many wonderful new medical advancements and technologies have come online, our ability to have an impact on the epidemic and the kinds of things that we fund as a grant making organization has also evolved.
1: What is your specific mission today then?
0: Our mission is to see an end to the AIDS epidemic by 2030. It's our mission, but it's also one of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Some of those advances that I talked about in terms of really effective treatment for HIV now, really good diagnostics and HIV testing, self-testing, home testing, make that a possibility. There are other challenges which are impeding that progress, but in terms of our medical advancements we are in a good place
1: as you said the organization was started 30 years ago i think you've been with the organization for almost 20 years and there's been so much tremendous and positive change over that time span you just mentioned many of the medical advances can you delve into a few of those things that have really transformed the dynamics to what they are today.
0: Sure, so as I say, in the early days, you were really talking about palliative care, about just making people a little bit more comfortable. Then you get this huge breakthrough where we have something called antiretroviral medication, which is seen to reduce the amount of HIV in your system, what's called the viral load, really dramatically. And you have people who had made their wills and were getting ready to die literally getting up from their sick beds and getting on with their lives. As that happened, by this stage, you have an epidemic that is global rather than just in North America and Western Europe. The foundation spent a lot of resources and money supporting ways in which those treatments could get to people as quickly as possible. And we did a lot of what's called decentralization or step-down work, because particularly in fragile systems in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, you can't have that treatment concentrated in one district hospital located in a city, which is hours or days walk for most patients who need to get there. So we funded a lot of work to make sure that those medicines got to the little local clinics where people could actually use them. And then more clinical trials showed that that antiretroviral medication, if taken by a pregnant woman, during her pregnancy, not only saved her life, prevented her from progressing from HIV infection to AIDS, but also stopped HIV from being passed from her to her unborn child. And this was another huge game changer. So we worked extensively in Southeast Asia and sub-Saharan Africa on programs that would enable pregnant mums A, to find out whether they were HIV positive, and secondly, if they were, to make sure that they took these drugs in their third trimester so that they gave birth to HIV negative babies. So suddenly you have a real momentum here. There's treatment that can save people's lives. And those developments led to something called PrEP, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis, where not just pregnant women, but all people who are at risk of contracting HIV can take antiretroviral formulations prophylactically, in other words, in advance of exposing themselves to the virus, and they also don't get HIV. So you have a really effective prevention strategy. It's not everything, there are also condoms and awareness and health literacy and so on, but you have a really effective strategy for preventing new infections and for saving people's lives at the same time, which became known as treatment as prevention. And more recently, We have had, as I say, with HIV testing, which used to be this long, agonizing process where you'd have to go to a hospital, you'd wait two weeks for the results. Now we have HIV self-testing and home testing, which is absolutely as straightforward as a COVID test and can give you a result very quickly. So you layer on top of getting the people who are already living with HIV to get access to good treatment with expanding the access to testing, because we now know that if you test positive, there is a route through which you can be safe and you won't pass HIV on to people that you love. That's been the journey. And now with the foundation, we are involved in very large programs, which are around smart and effective ways of making sure that people are aware that these technologies exist and the delivery systems to make sure that they're able to use them
1: really is just an incredible timeline and journey. To hear you recap it like that, it's just a wonder.
0: Yeah, and when you look back at news footage from the late 80s and early 90s, and just the hopelessness of this epidemic, particularly as we've all just lived through a a global pandemic, was heartbreaking and desperate. And to see now that we're in a position where millions of people around the world are on treatment and it's saved their lives. They haven't orphaned their children. They're able to be productive members of society and millions more are able to protect themselves through this medicine and tests regularly to make sure that they're not living with HIV that they don't know about.
1: Mm-hmm. It really is incredible. Uh, but I also want to think about, too, the theme of World AIDS Day this year in 2022, which is equalize, because all of the treatments and prevention strategies that you just mentioned are incredible. But we also recognize that there's disparities in access to prevention and access to treatment services and that there's disparities in the populations as well that are more likely to be at risk or to contract HIV AIDS. Can you share maybe a few data points or give us a picture of what those disparities or
0: inequalities look like across the globe? Sure. So actually now, in terms of new global infections, almost 70% of all infections are amongst so-called key populations or vulnerable people. And this falls into a number of not ideal but broad buckets, which is the LGBTQ community, people who use drugs, people who sell sex, people who are incarcerated. And then on top of that, you have a huge cohort of young people, particularly young women, who are very vulnerable. And the thing that all of these groups have in common is they like the agency to get the information that they need to keep them safe and then to act on that information and in a lot of cases that's really prevented because of shame and judgment social shame and judgment or in extreme cases particularly around lgbt in criminalization you know it's still illegal to be gay in 68 countries around the world over a dozen of them by the death penalty now Despite all of these amazing advances, no one is going to come forward and put their head above the parapet to be tested for HIV when they risk the possibility that they're going to go to prison. You absolutely hit the nail on the head. Our huge challenge now is what you might call some of the structural determinants, the inequality for these vulnerable populations, and the stigma and discrimination that's thrown at them, which makes it so difficult for them to do what they need to do to keep themselves safe.
1: Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that you use the word agency. I think that's a great way to put it. And Mike, I think that that's a way that I'd love to bring you into the conversation here, um, and a good point to do so, because I know that At Chevron, where you work, you're doing a lot to try to provide employees and the communities where Chevron is with the agency for prevention and treatment of HIV AIDS. But let's back up a little bit and talk first about how it was that Chevron became so invested in preventing and treating HIV
2: AIDS. Yeah, thanks for that. And thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure and a privilege. Um, And just listening to Ann, it was real, I mean, it was refreshing because, I mean, they're doing such amazing work and it's really aligned. um, We're aligned in a lot of the ways that we work and our goals and our strategies. So it's just uh, nice to hear that. So so Chevron's been in existence for over 140 years and always had a focus on the health and safety of our workforce and always uh, as well with supporting our communities and where we operate. And we feel like it's our responsibility, you know, wherever we're operating to support, of course, our workforce and keep them healthy and safe and fit for duty. But then to bring that out into the communities and and support the communities, our workforce lives in these communities as well. Our HIV AIDS response began in the probably the mid to later 1980s. And we really started seeing a lot of our workforce directly affected by the virus. Certainly in our home offices, which were in the San Francisco Bay Area. And then certainly, in particular, our Africa operations. So our programs begin with you know, leadership support. We had great executive sponsorship, which was, of course, critical for us in putting more financial support behind that, as well as getting new proposals and progress within our workforce as well. So really focused a lot on HIV workplace programs at the beginning, established a culture that encourages HIV testing and treatment fighting stigma, and providing comprehensive medical care for employees and their dependents. We focus a lot, again, on the education and training you know, for our workforce, but also our medical personnel. So we have Chevron-managed and Chevron-staffed clinics around the world. So that was a big part of us being able to um, reach our workforce more effectively, but also, again, those clinicians would go out in the communities too. In 2005, we were the first energy company to implement an HIV-AIDS policy. Which really addressed the issues I just talked about, also with benefits, policies, and exclusionary clauses. And we worked, um, certainly working with our partners has been critical along the way. We worked uh, in the early days with several partners. Um, As an example, we partnered to develop a a video for school-age youth in San Francisco Unified School District, partnering with the Department of Public Health. We have an internal peer health educator program that actually grew out of the HIV AIDS crisis so these are volunteer employees that are trained and act like trusted advocates, basically, who are equipped through some training uh, to support their peers, families. They take that out into the community members as well with trusted information. Um, they're able to provide resource referrals. Again, a lot of times that's more that resonates more from a peer than it does maybe from you know, the corporate office, as an example. So we continue also to partner with our PRIDE employee resource group, which was actually the first employee network group we had at Chevron was our PRIDE network. So we have partnered with them on education and safe behaviors and stigma and misinformation. Again, supporting our communities through partnerships uh, has always been part of sort of our uh, values that are woven into the fabric of our company culture. And many of our partnerships began out of the HIV AIDS crisis with uh, the Global Fund, for example. Uh, San Francisco AIDS Foundation, University of California, San Francisco, PACT, where we did a lot of work um, supporting mother-to-child transmission initiatives in Nigeria, Angola, Cambodia, Thailand, and South Africa, for example.
1: It's a huge body of work that you're doing, and I'm sure it's just something to be so proud of. I want to circle back to what Chevron is doing in terms of reducing stigma. It sounds like there's a lot of on-the-ground work, peer-to-peer education, Utilizing your networks of employees, can we drill down just for a minute and talk about any other initiatives that you have in place to reduce stigma?
2: We've taken this more holistic picture of all things health. So, you know, we've had a very strong HIV/AIDS pillar uh, as one of our big health pillars in the past, but we we're looking at that much more holistically over the decades, and really looking at all the things that that come along with that, which we still struggle with and, and some of those inequities and in talking about social and uh, health determinants and the need for strengthening systems. But the stigma is obviously something that's persisted through uh, the HIV AIDS crisis, certainly has persisted through COVID. We've seen firsthand uh, even in monkeypox. So, you know, working with our our, our resource groups um, like the Pride Network has been a great way to reach different audiences, you know, evolving and developing our communications in a way that it's these evidence-based and, and data-driven, but then making sure it's coming from the right source, with the right voice, you know, at the right time, uh, I think is pretty critical.
1: And then, Anne, in terms of stigma, what would you add in terms of what you're seeing happening on the ground in terms of reduction efforts?
0: I love what Mike says about sort of wrapping HIV around broader things, because I think the thing we need to remember is that people aren't vulnerable just because they have HIV, they were vulnerable, and then they got HIV in many instances. So making common cause is really important. You know, We've done some interesting work. We worked in the UK on something called opt-out testing for HIV, because it was not standard practice across the health service. In terms of the delivery mechanism, when you say to someone, if I say to you, I want to test you for HIV, there's an instant kind of defensiveness that says, What judgments are you making about me? If you say to someone, we test everybody for HIV, it's a totally different kind of response. So we did this in South London and found half of all people who should have been diagnosed and in care but weren't. And what's interesting about that is that they've now loaded hepatitis B and hepatitis C onto that. And that has an impact not just for people living with HIV, but also people who are at risk of those diseases and people who use drugs. And so I think there's an important imperative in some of these structural changes to make common cause and not just see people as a kind of disease vector, but as a whole person, and what things make them more vulnerable, make all of us more vulnerable, or more likely to seek care. I think political will is also another huge thing. You know, what comes, the criminalization and social exclusion of people who are living with HIV or at risk really needs to change at the top, as well as within communities. So we need political leaders who will work on decriminalization. In terms of stigma, I think the other thing is new voices and new ambassadors. You know, HIV and AIDS is a long epidemic, as we've said, because it now is so much an issue around equity or inequity. And because we have this kind of very current and passionate discussion about sex and sexuality, I think this is going to bring forth, and we see in the foundation, new voices and new ambassadors around the world who are going to fight stigma and discrimination because so much of it and around AIDS is associated with homosexuality. They're going to fight it and they're going to fight it very vocally and very powerfully. Gen Z is very open. For sure. And they are allies. Yeah. The number of people around the world who are now identifying where it's not a crime to do so has risen so dramatically in the last two or three years. But we've got to get rid of this criminalization framework and mindset around people of different genders and different sexualities.
1: I've been talking with Anne Aslett, CEO of the Elton John AIDS Foundation, and Mike Steinberg, team lead... For global public health and special projects at Chevron Corporation. We'll be right back.
3: Chronic conditions are a public health crisis, impacting the health and quality of life of millions of Americans while burdening employers with lost productivity and healthcare costs. At Onduo by Verily, We know limited access to affordable and equitable health care are major contributors. That's why Onduo was born, to help people get the care needed to lead healthier lives with chronic conditions. Onduo delivers personalized, precision care through a user-friendly solution. We're advanced health tech that provides access to a real care team, offering personalized support through daily insights dedicated coaching, specialist access, and tailored interventions in the moments that matter most. By partnering with ONDUO, employers put quality, inclusive care that can foster a happier, healthier workforce within reach, which may help lower costs.
1: I wanna pivot just a bit and come back to you, Mike, because Chevron is a global organization And I know you have a comprehensive program and policy dedicated to HIV AIDS prevention and treatment, but I'm wondering how your programs and your policies are rolled out differently across the world. If there are nuances for what you're doing, say in San Francisco, to what you're potentially doing in Africa and how those differences in what you're doing are informed.
2: That's a really good question. Yes, yeah, so we are global and have been for a very long time. And, and clearly, we have to take some different approaches depending on the culture, depending on the regulation, depending on the legal climate, depending on you know our relationships with the government, depending on the workforce and the highest risks within that workforce and the type of operations that we have. So we, we do look a lot at data with risk ranking exercises, obviously in environmental and in social risk, but health as well. So we look at what are the things that really where we could have the most impact within these communities and our workforce, how can we then either direct resources or social investment or programs or services to help address those. One of the things we've advanced and that we've uh, thinking of an example is our, our programs have evolved. You know, we, we haven't just implemented stuff and, and left it at that. So the discussion about PrEP, you know, we we're talking a little bit about PrEP earlier, about it was later 2018 we've committed uh, to providing prep to all of our employees globally so that's that's no easy you know process really we got a little slowed down through covid so we're still on implementation mode but you know we really had to look at what does this look like in, a, in, in each region in each country in each state even that we we operate in and again looking at all those things i mentioned about regulatory uh, legal, what the health system is like, what are the gaps in the health system, what's the sustainability of it. It's a fragmented rollout really right now. It's not like we're just rolling it all out at once. We're going sort of location by location is how it's in reality turning out. You know, in some locations we have access to PrEP and it's available through their insurance. So that rollout's gonna look a little different um, for how we educate our workforce around, here's what PrEP is, and we do have already internal sites dedicated to PrEP, uh, websites um, for our workforce around what it is. Here's some resources available. Here's where you can find it in your communities where we do have that information. And then also, how do we educate people about it? Um, And it's not just here you're getting some medication. Back to that whole person health and the holistic view, you have to really provide other resources around. Let's look at some of the the barriers. Let's look at some of the behaviors. Let's look at some of the stigmas associated with this and make sure people are getting the right support and addressing more than just here's some medication to help you reduce your risk. Getting back to rollouts and other places, we have clinics at a lot of our locations and some of those clinics actually have pharmacies and we dispense medication out of those clinics. Just recently, actually in our Philippines health and medical team, they uh, progressed their PrEP program And now they're working with a local partner in the Philippines and they're providing a whole process of screening and counseling and consultation and then um, distributing PrEP to all of our workforce free of charge. And I think that's an example of something they were able to put together in the Philippines with a local partner. And again, in other locations, it's going to be maybe dependent on insurance and our benefit providers that we work with. In some locations, again, we've got some clinics that, even if it's not, uh, we talk about what's legal in some countries and what's not, wherever we can get it legally into a country where the infrastructure might not be very good, then we can actually dispense this out of our Chevron Clinic to our employees through some processes, and again, screening process and and consultation.
1: So what has the feedback been from employees about this program across
2: the world? I think in general, all of our HIV efforts and, and programs I feel like at least the reception is good. Um, so I think our workforce is used to receiving really good benefits and programs and assistance with things. Again, based on what's available in each different country, a lot of times in some countries we've been the first to provide healthcare in that country, wow. you know, to our workforce and then we expand that out in the communities, we help to build hospitals and do some different social investment. So I think a lot of our workforce is a kind of expected um, and expecting that we provide really good benefits and opportunities. And it also aligns really well with our values. So I think one example I can remember um, thinking about prep and and uh, some reception of, of what we do, you know, there was a, a group of our employees in the UK and they were asking about our prep commitments. And I kind of think maybe they didn't feel like things were moving as quickly as they would like. They were very vocal, but um, it was good discussions we had. So I met several times with them link them with our medical director in the UK. We developed an engagement plan together um, and we actually leveraged one of our local US partners that had a great relationship with an HIV clinic in London. And we had that clinic go speak to our workforce in the UK. It was great to work with that employee group. Once we found out how interested they were, I really appreciate that engagement on their part and the interest. And I think we've been able to deliver some what they need in that in that location, so I felt like that reception was good, and and I was really happy that they spoke up and were engaged in that way.
1: Mm, it must feel rewarding. Well, I want to pivot again to public-private partnerships because I know that both of your organizations are engaged in partnerships. Our audience, as you know, are large employers and their health industry partners. So, if you were to make the case to them for public-private partnerships, for the prevention and treatment of HIV-AIDS, what case would that be?
0: Interesting. I read a Edelman research earlier this year, looking at the general public's confidence levels in different sectors, government, nonprofit, and the business sector, both in terms of their ability to address pressing problems. In their communities and around the world, and their confidence that they would do so with integrity. And what was fascinating about that was that governments, both in terms of their ability and their willingness to solve problems, a confidence rating had gone through the floor. Nonprofits had raised somewhat because of COVID, and there were fantastic response to COVID. But corporations were through the roof in terms of people's confidence that they had the technical ability and the will and the empowerment to actually address these problems. So I would say, from our perspective, you know, we have a big partnership at the moment. We have multiple partnerships with big corporations. But one at the moment that comes to mind is with Walmart in America. Because, you know, you have 400,000 Americans who are living with HIV and aren't on treatment. And you have about 165,000 people who don't even know that they're infected. And overwhelmingly, the most at risk are amongst African American and Latino populations. Walmart, which is this huge company with 5,000 stores across America, has a footprint which overlaps so deeply with the communities that we need to reach and they are trusted and this is what's interesting about this trust index they are deeply trusted because that's where you buy your groceries, that's where you buy your Christmas tree, it's what you use, and it's round the corner. And in many cases, they're trusted much more than standard health facilities. So I think there's that. I think there's also, as Mike talks about, you know, mobilizing a workforce that cares about this. You know, The people who work at Walmart are also in this population that's vulnerable to HIV and other diseases. So to mobilize them and then to have care delivered Or services or information or engagement delivered by people who look and sound like you, we know from decades is much more effective than something that seems to be delivered on high or in complex medical language. They also have goods and services that are what we need. You know, we've raised over half a billion dollars in our history, but there are things that companies can do which is already part of their delivery, whether it's IT and technical infrastructure or um, data analytics or a voice or a, a channel through which they can reach people that mean that, you know, your needs to raise funds are less urgent because you can do it to some extent with what already exists. And from the example that Mike gives about Chevron's workplace programs, it also offers an opportunity in some countries where there really isn't the body of evidence or the critical mass of people who are accessing something like PrEP to make the advocacy case You can make the health case but what's wonderful is if you have a if you have a company program that's delivering this and you can provide data that's when you go back to governments and you can make the advocacy argument about this is something that should be standard provision and we know this is what the uptake is likely to be and this is what it costs and so on you've got a much better armory with which to talk about it and you've got interest because you have people in those environments, in those communities who are accessing that kind of healthcare. So I really feel, not just for HIV, but for COVID and other things, I really feel like this nexus of nonprofit and corporations who have values where they really want to make the world a better place, and they're well positioned, either through what they do or how they communicate or where they are, to reach the people who need to get information and services. And then there's an opportunity to make some of those structural changes, which can only happen ultimately, in most cases, by policy changes as well. I think it's a huge win. I really do. And I admire Chevron enormously for what they're doing.
1: Really compelling, Anne. Thanks for that. And Mike, I know that you're equally passionate about this topic. Anything that you would add?
2: Anne had a great example there and and totally agree with all those points. And we have a lot of partnerships as well that are trying to accomplish some similar things. So that's, I think that's promising. You know, there's so many people working on this. I mean, we feel like every sector, every you know agency, public, private organization really has a role in this, you know, back to what we were talking about earlier. Sometimes it's, you know, maybe HIV AIDS is not the single thing that an, an organization is focused on, but there's all those intersections with, and I promise there's those intersections that do connect with things that the, those organizations are interested in. So sometimes I do think, making that connection and helping people understand, like, this is sometimes more than just about one disease here. You're also helping to build and strengthen these systems and capabilities that are going to help with HIV AIDS and um, other health threats. Definitely everyone has a role to this that they need to play. And uh, whether it's large or small, everything can have an impact. We have the ability to make significant impact in regions where we operate and working definitely with, you know, multisectoral collaboratives and alliances, I think working together, obviously we have a a greater impact. And it's not just financial to what Anne said. Um, You know, we're accessing collective experience, you know, expertise, the networks, the technology, supply chains and capabilities of one another. I mean, that can really have a lot of impact. I mean, look what we were able to accomplish. The world was able to accomplish when we got all the best science, the research, health community, working towards the same goal without barriers, And together, and then with department-like defense spending, of course, look at the unprecedented progress we've been able to make, you know, getting that COVID vaccine in record time and saving lives. I do think it's important to establish the shared goals with partners, be very clear on aspirations, have real plans and outcomes-focused steps. We can all talk a lot, but we really need specific steps and we really need to be impact and outcomes-focused. Just one story I was thinking about. again back to the ways that public private partnerships could really add a lot of value we've we've leveraged our partners expertise you know time and time again you know they're the ones doing the work on the ground they're the ones with the real expertise oftentimes uh, but i remember one partner that was um, we've partnered with years back and it was an emergency response partner and the other day i was actually talking with them and they were sharing hey you know, remember when you guys helped us get into this country We wanted to get into this one specific country and um, provide some aid and services. We didn't really have a connection there. So it was Chevron that we helped um, connect them with the local government because we were doing operations there. And we were able to provide those introductions and bring them in. We're actually not in that country anymore, but they still are we're able to make those connections for them. And I, again, that's just one example of how we work together with our partners and opportunities that we can leverage. And again, outside of the financial realm, of course, which is always needed, but there's really a lot of value in partnerships.
0: And we talked about, you know, Gen Z's earlier, it's a win for the company as well, it seems to me, because increasingly, young people don't want to work for an organization that doesn't have clear values and doesn't act on those values. And so seeing an organization like Chevron or Walmart, or, you know, we work with Gilead and and a whole range of other organizations, actually, it's meaningful. It's not just a statement in a company brochure, they're actually doing it, attracts the kind of talent that you want, passionate young people as well. So
1: well said. Well, as we start to wrap up here, I have a lightning round of questions for each of you. So quick questions, quick answers. Anne, maybe we'll start with you. I know your foundation has the ambitious goal of ending HIV-AIDS by 2030. What is the next immediate step that we need to take collectively to get there?
0: From a structural point of view, we need to see not just HIV, but all infectious diseases, COVID, monkeypox, and others to come as a combined threat and collaborate on our resources rather than splitting them. And then if I may, one other Thing we need to change political will. We need to change laws and policies. And Mike, what one
1: piece of advice would you give employers that are looking to invest more fully in the prevention and treatment of HIV-AIDS?
2: Understand and figure out what your your specific goals are and what your values are, and then align some efforts around that. You don't have to recreate the wheel. There's been a lot of work done in this space and a lot of data and a lot of research and a lot of partnerships and mechanisms that are already in place. So I think leveraging those existing learnings and then determining how you can support that and whether it be with just the specific HIV AIDS focus or back to building stronger systems that are going to help us manage all health threats, you know, now and in the future, I think those are some good ways to start approaching that.
0: And what gives you hope? Oh, what gives me hope is the hundreds and thousands, millions of people that we've supported and worked with and partnered with, because despite formidable odds over the last kind of two decades that I've been doing this, they have never stopped and they have never given up. And I also believe that fundamentally, human beings want people to be safe and secure and healthy and free in the main. Yeah, that's what gives me hope.
2: Yeah, I would fully agree with that. I think, look what we've been able to accomplish with medicine and technology, with uh, partnerships, with the aligned structures that have been put in place and mechanisms that have been put in place. And people are living longer, safer, and more productive lives with HIV AIDS. And then we've got U equals U, where people we've got great treatments and opportunities for people to manage any illness and live more prosperous lives. I also think the recent Global Fund Replenishment was positive. You know, we've had a lot of people that have been working this for a really, really long time. There's a lot of room for some organizations, maybe this is new to them, to start stepping up and, and getting involved.
1: Well, that's a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much for joining me today and for having this conversation. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for having us.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
1: I've been speaking with Anne Aslitt, CEO of the Elton John AIDS Foundation, and Mike Steinberg, Global Public Health and Special Projects team lead at Chevron Corporation, about how to support people living with HIV AIDS around the world. I'm Pamela Rich. This podcast is produced by Business Group on Health with Connected Social Media. If you enjoyed today's conversation and know someone who would too, please consider sharing.